Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. So why are you listening to this episode if you haven't read the book? Keep up. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, it's the world one reread a practical guide to evil where... A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Did Cordelia ever receive my fan mail? What the heck, Bill? And when will the exiled prince reclaim his rightful throne? As soon as he crushes the 15th in pitched battle. One, use a sword fit for your height and build, not the largest chunk of metal you can find. It will both improve your life expectancy and save you a great many jokes about overcompensation. 200 Heroic Axioms, Unknown Author This chapter is divided into two parts. The first is a Hassenbach discussion over really Prosser and Affairs, but at the moment Prosser and Affairs are both Precy Affairs and... Free cities affairs. They're very cosmopolitan, these Prosserans. And the second half of the chapter is Bill. We meet some named, we have discussions, but it's just, I hate to say this, but nasty. Heroic interludes these days are rough because, on one hand, you get Cordelia. Fantastic. Yeah, that's on the, other, on the other hand, you get bill perspective chapters and woof but the chapter begins with cordelia and her uncle uh taking a look at the situation in callow and promising it's not that bad rather klaus speaks in klaus damns the enterprise by faint mitigation by saying it's not as bad as it looks while they contemplate the map that is not the way you want a military discussion to go. No, it is Unless not. Unless it's a really enthusiastic, like, oh, it's not as bad as it looks. Actually, this is all a trap. Okay, great. But yeah, but if you're say, but if you're saying it, it's not a good sign. Like, if you have to say it's not as bad as it looks, even if it actually, if that's actually true. Uh, however, it does look pretty dang bad. Um, it. Turns out that the Countess Marchford is currently planning to evacuate the city rather than give battle to the, the legions that are coming. Um, so giving up an entire city is basically never what you want to happen. 
wars that you know real life wars uh, that would take place in a society similar is somewhat similar the you know rough we do live in a society yeah, rough medieval analog situation uh they typically revolved around reaching and then capturing strong points like cities giving one up without a fight especially in Kalo, where they only have a handful of major cities and you know those are all pretty strategically important for that reason just giving one up and leaving it's a massive concession and also in a place like Kalo, where national pride is like a huge thing for everybody uh that has got to just shatter morale. You're dealing with levies, and that's something that uh, that Klaus especially is talking about being concerned about. Uh, giving up a city and all of its associated farmlands, even with the promise that we'll be back, is how do I? I can't imagine a situation where you can pitch that to your soldiers and have them all enthusiastically be on board. I mean, in our world, sure, it would be disheartening to abandon a city, no doubt, obviously. I've thankfully never been in that position, but whenever we've seen cities have to be evacuated, whether it's in wars or in the face of an impending natural disaster, we see how reluctant people are to even carry that out, though it mean their death. However, this is callow, and maybe it's just part of their culture? Bear with me. Yeah, abandoning a city is a big deal, but this is a country where soon enough we're going to see a city abandon them ah hey that's a good point actually it's just sort of sort of baked into the Kaluan psyche that cities and people abandon each other cordelia is flabber-founded and dumbgasted by this whole affair she looks at this and says why would she retreat she has nigh twenty thousand soldiers now including a core of dwarven infantry the Empire has only sent two legions to subdue her, 8,000 soldiers at most. And I am not a military historian, but I'm under the impression that 20,000 soldiers in a defended position, such as a city, generally are considered to be in a favorable position against maybe 8,000. Yeah, that checks out. Uh, I think it's important to note that Cordelia is not a military mastermind. That's like not her field, which is why she has Klaus. And I'm not She's trying to. She's a great to, delegator. Right. I'm not trying to attack her here. She fully admits this many times throughout this story, and that's great. Um, she refers to these 20,000 people as soldiers. We know for a fact that the majority are levies, uh, and levies and soldiers are not synonymous terms. Uh, <laughs> The, Mar- the Duchess, of, sorry, the Countess of Marchford has twenty thousand people w- willing to fight, which is very different. The Empire has eight thousand professional, trained, very disciplined soldiers, and there's some more factors that we hear soon enough. But uh, but who's you know, got the wall? Oh yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely huge for sure. The defense of a city, the defense of a strong point is big. Also, dwarven infantry. Uh, that's kind of a big thing to just sort of have dropped in here, just casually. They've got Dwarven infantry as their core. Though it's really unclear what that really means. Right. And do these dwarves have the kind of mass-produced gear that they provide the humans because they don't want to risk it falling into human hands? Are they great Dwarven soldiers? Are they really They're just... Also levies? Mm-hmm. 
Are yeah. they here as part of their training? You know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's really hard to say. And the fun part about that is it's hard for us to say. It's just as hard for Cordelia or for Countess Marchford to say. I guarantee it. The dwarves are not going to be like, here's our bad fighters. Good luck. You know? <laughs> the the Kingdom Under, there's a lot of secrecy there. It's the most powerful and most unified force in Calernia. Yep, exactly. But again, more than double the soldiers, mm-hmm. and they've got the wall. And we know from the scriptures that we build the wall to keep us free. That's a Hades Town reference, not a really unfortunate American reference. Hades Town is an amazing musical. I, you're not going to go with the wall keeps out the enemy as the line to, to reference, because I feel like that's more applicable here. Well, we build the wall to keep us free, because how does the wall keep us free? The wall keeps out the enemy. And who do we call the enemy? Prace. Prace, yep. Cordelia is utterly proper in everything, but she's got a good family. And I don't mean this as something to her credit. We have the family we have in terms of biology. I encourage everyone to make productive choices about the family they actually maintain, relation or not. But her uncle, who is way more important than everyone else except her in this room, thanks the servant who hands him a bowl of soup. And that's what you gotta do. I am of the firm opinion that everyone should be appreciated for the work they do regardless of how they're required to do it. You order a lift, when you get in the vehicle, say thank you for picking me up. Be decent. And then if you're wealthy, like the Prince of Hanover, slip them some silver pieces. Especially I, if he makes the rich people look bad. I adore that he's tipping the servants here, which, not not making fun of him. It, you know, it's just, name any other whatever, historical fiction or historical work or fantasy work where this kind of thing would happen, where somebody would tip the palace servants for giving them soup. I don't know if I've ever heard of that. It's phenomenal. He's so good. But yes, there's more to it than just charity. Her uncle's habit of slipping silver to the hired help was as much a dig at the local nobility as it was genuine charity. And like, Two birds, one stone. I'm sorry, that is so insensitive for her cousin. Um, (laughs) Honestly, making the rich look bad is a virtuous thing. Being kind to the downtrodden is a virtuous thing. Charity is one of the holiest virtues, regardless of your theologies. Great job, Klaus. I'm so sorry for what you have to face, but I'm glad that you're ready for it and have been since birth. Klaus notes that the men are peasant levies, which... Edits the calculations a bit, though again, the wall. And I'm just so curious. The dwarves, whatever. As he talks about this, he uses some harsh language. He says exactly what half the boys will do within their breaches the moment the Black Knight charges. And Cordelia is displeased, but etiquette dictates that she may not express her disgust at the crudity just displayed. She may not even wrinkle her nose, and thus does not. And she gestures discreetly for the servant to take away his soup when he isn't looking. And I am a huge fan of navigating restrictive and Byzantine social norms to exact petty revenge to influence behavior. And Cordelia is always a masterclass in this. And I find it extraordinarily attractive. I mean, there's so many layers to this. She mentions in the monologue we in the internal discussion that we get that 
he thinks that what he's eating is disgusting. She's taking away a very rich person's onion stew as like a punishment. <laughs> the fact that she like gets a servant to do it when he's not looking and when he notices, he knows why it happened because she has trained him well. Every part of this is amazing. The other reason that's such a big deal, the war, not the onion stew, grow up and eat cabbage stew, is that Klaus warns her, you don't ever want to get into a siege with the Preci. Because Preci is the only nation on Colernia that has a permanent core dedicated to siege warfare. And that's fascinating to me. It makes a degree of sense, but it's fascinating. I know in Prosser, we don't fight in the cities. Prosser is very much a terrible place where, you know, we'll fight wars and let the fields run with blood, but let, let's not go into the place where we have possessions. Right. You let the peasants die so that you can get a slightly better trade and deal with your, your neighbors, like adults do. Dominion is just the Dominion, and I say that pejoratively. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting that the free cities have no use for siege, or at least no... They haven't found the need to maintain a permanent siege core. That one makes perfect sense. Oh? Uh, militaries are expensive. Having True. specialized people within your military is expensive, especially when that specialization leans away from the versatility of a normal infantry person being able to just fight. The free cities are made up of city-states who are mostly fighting each other not rather than needing to do anything else. So the way that their warfare is going to develop is mostly going to be fighting against a single city at a time without really the expectation of a complete conquest. And also having a siege corps would be incredibly expensive for a single city to maintain if they're also trying to maintain the ability to fight on the field. It makes sense for smaller states to not be able to do this. That's very fair. And then you get to places like the Dead King, Yes, Where they called him a place, but arguable. Yeah, fair. Where he can just build siege engines if he wants, but also oh, war is different for him. And then... The, yeah, the dedicated core to siege warfare is just the part of his brain where he remembers how to do siege warfare, I guess. Then among the drow, you just either are or are not a siege core in yourself, hashtag you, Remaina, Remaina, Remaina. You're saying you're either Remaina or you're not Remaina. <laughs> Correct. And there's only one right answer. And you do not have it. Also true. Yeah, and the, obviously Callow doesn't have a military at this point. And, I mean, kind of does. 20,000 levy, boom. But also, historically, it's been on the other side of the siege. So Right. And even when it was doing crusades, those were brief flash those are affairs where you are throwing your military as you have at price not revamping everything the i mean this is what they're talking about right here is a product of black's reforms which makes it a very modern thing i mean we know price has the modern military when it comes to tactics and, and organization and all of that for a number of reasons but a large part is just you know amadeus so everyone else can get involved in sieges Klaus tells us. But, he says, we use imported dwarven designs like everybody else, but the Preci make their own. Cool. Well, I think there's something to be said here, Some a little bit of information there that is kind of swept under the rug, and I don't know if that's on Klaus's end, where he just doesn't care, or if the Preci just 
handle this well. Yeah, the Precy make their own, but it's not like the Institute of the Tower is behind this. There's a particular part of Precy society that is doing this. Uh, yeah, they've got their permanent core of siege warfare, but let's be honest, they the they in this sentence is just the goblins. Precy society is not the right phrase to use when noting a tapestry that includes the goblins. They're deliberately not part of the society. They're part of the state. They're yeah. I mean, that's fair. The culture is informed by their existence, but they're deliberately not part of the society. They're too cool for the humans. And Cordelia thinks through the cultural divide. Prosperance rarely took cities when they waged war on each other. Princes disliked the idea of having sweaty, dirty soldiers ransacking their famously rich family seats. And, you know, I love my sister, my spouse, and my mother, Cordelia, but I despise her ilk. Every other prince and prosser is just the worst, and we can mitigate this for select individuals when we actually get to them because of the thing they do with their hips. But for now, <laughs> all of them exiled. Yeah. Wicked. Cordelia needs to do what Black wants to do. Yeah, I mean, Cordelia would live in a world where the, the pilgrim would hang. We would live in a world where the the entirety of the Proserin government would. It, it's whatever. It's basically the same same idea. We're near the entirety would. Just not just Cordelia. Not <laughs> and She's let's, a good one. And let's be honest, we'd make an exception for the Kingfisher Prince too. Not on like mor- not on moral grounds or anything, but just come on. Oh, I would make my exception on very immoral grounds. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So I know we know Cordelia isn't a military mastermind, and she knows this. But given the wars she prosecuted and led to get to her position, mm-hmm. I would think she would have some understanding of war. You must. You surely must. Right. But Klaus talks about how the Countess will burn the ground as she moves further south, so the legions will arrive to the battlefield half-starved. And Cordelia's response, while a thing to think about, is very simplistic. They do have a supply train, Uncle. They can keep themselves fed. And I'm not an expert on the prosecution of war because I haven't led one in some time. But isn't one of the big vulnerabilities of that monster which crawls upon its stomach the supply train, the severing of which would lead to problems? Uh, yes. Supply trains are rough. They are incredibly vulnerable. They slow down your military. They are indicative of situations like this where you you always would prefer your army to be able to feed itself on the move rather than rely on a supply train, in part because supply trains are absurdly expensive. Uh, given how they worked prior to vehicles... Sorry, that's the wrong term. Given how they worked prior to uh, powered vehicles, cars and things like that, or trucks, I guess, uh, your supply train is carrying food and potentially water for all of your soldiers, all of your military mounts, all of your camp followers, yada yada, and also food for itself, because it's being pulled by large animals that need a lot of food. The amount of space that all of this takes up is would be unbelievable to the modern eye. It, it, it's horrific to think about. Uh, you don't... Uh, you don't do a supply train if you can avoid it. Just forcing them to have a supply train rather than being able to forage is a huge win, frankly. 
Why does the army not simply use gems to convert stone into wheat? Wow, yeah, that's true. Good point. Good question. Uh, I guess I... Oh, no uh, no cavern fiends to harvest gem hearts from. Uh, see? Sanderson did not foresee that when writing this work. Hmm. But Klaus has a plan for that, which is... The specifics are not obvious, but that there is one is. You harass the supply train. That Right. You... That that goes without saying. It's like in a war, you want to kill the enemy, right? Especially when you are callow and thus have the cavalry advantage. Even if some of that cavalry is foreign mercenaries, yeah, you've got the mobility advantage. Supply chain trains are especially weak, and so they have the silver spears based in Marchford. As soon as the sixth and the ninth legions move south, I just know it's an interesting. Uh, thing but as soon as they move south they'll hit the supply trains and harass their rear great however we have the silver spears based in marchford and klaus says verbatim the moment the sixth and the ninth move south he'll hit the supply trains and harass their rear he will the silver spears an organization is in marchford but he will hit the supply trains how interesting who is this individual whose personhood is able to subsume the entire Silver Spears within himself. Well, we get a hero, uh, the Exiled Prince, who uh, we find out here, and I find out legitimately, because I had completely forgotten this detail, is the nephew of the Tyrant of Helike. Oh. Uh, yeah, that's kind of a large detail that I that it entirely slipped my mind about this entire arc. That's uh that's quite the pedigree. <laughs> I would like to note, however, that more importantly than the nephew is the tyrant. My boy, Kairos, the only truly good cinnamon roll, too sweet, too good for this world in the entire series, is here. I love him. I am grateful to read of him. Anytime he gets mentioned is good. Uh, another detail about this exiled prince that I have stopped caring about now that the tyrant has been mentioned, but, you know, just for completion's sake. Uh, the exiled prince is apparently the, by right, the lawful ruler of Halike. So, you know, kind of got a lot going on here. Here's the thing. If the tyrant were the rightful ruler of the city, I feel that would weaken him somewhat. You, you, you don't rule by right in his position. You must be right in that you rule yeah uh, missing usurpation as part of his story would be tragic so klaus thinks poorly of the squire he doesn't care that the newly raised 15th is going to meet the exiled prince on the field because it's a sloppy half legion led by a squire with no notable accomplishments to her name and my guy you he doesn't even see reason when it's brought to his face when Cordelia notes, she drove back the swordsman when he assaulted Summerholm. And Klaus scoffs. The warlock did that. She was just on the scene when it happened. If Prosser had an ounce, a single imperial ounce, of name lore in the whole of their nobility, think how far they could go. The, the, yeah. The nice thing is, his mistake here is really only one of information and expectation. He isn't directly handing Catherine a win by saying this because he's not no, named. No. He, like, he's not tied into that in the same way. 
But uh, that said, saying that the warlock is the one who drove off the swordsman and Cat was just on the scene when it happened. Frankly, when you're not there, a very fair take about like even getting an accurate summary of events, a very fair take about how it went down. And if you don't have an accurate summary, probably the only reasonable assumption about the events, frankly. Let's see, a squire who is very new and so far has seen battle uh, none times, or the Calamity. Who did the fighting? Who won the fight? Yeah, I'm, I'm betting on Warlock. But which one of them is very plainly and specifically put in place by the Calamity? They underestimate Black. And it's a good thing that he never comes across or, or things will go sideways. Hmm... Uh, and then there's a, a bit where, talking about the Lone Swordsman here, Klaus, you, you know, he doesn't know Billy very well. How could he? He knows of him. They've probably, maybe, I don't know, exchanged letters at most. Uh, Klaus is, he says, now that he's been slapped around a bit, he'll stop hunting calamities and go after opponents he can actually kill. First of all, he is so extremely right about what Billy should take away from this fight, uh, from this whole mess. Like, yep, Billy has seen that he can't beat Warlock. He should go fight people he can beat. But he just has a fundal, fundamental misunderstanding about who William is, I think. Uh, because if you think the Lone Swordsman's going to learn a lesson other than, oh, I need to stab better next time, who oh boy. They have a limited view being so far west and that can be costly ordelia internal monologues to us that the principate holds those in disdain who expect heroes to win their wars for them and she acknowledges not unfairly that it's easy for them to say when they so rarely find villains leading hosts into their land but as i foreshadowed before um i wonder how that's going to work out for them really well right Everything goes well for Cordelia, right? Honestly, at first, the villain isn't the real problem, somehow. Yeah. But they're interrupted. The mm -hmm. Lady Augur requests their presence. Because they may not have names leading their armies, but they certainly have a very important named woman. Cute little Agnes Hassenbach. I love her. She's fragile. She sees things in the birds. I once played Tiresias in a university production of Antigone. Got to wear a chiton and a mask, and I got to talk about reading signs and the burned guts of the birds, and it was great. Antigone is a great play. Sophocles knows what he was doing, though he hasn't put out anything new for a while. Yeah, what's he been up to? I don't know. And speaking of portents, both ominous and foreboding, I have seen the future, and it brings only deicide and applied blasphemy. Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is our segment where we discuss comments and questions from you, our dear listeners. We have falsely assumed the thrones of your gods, and we invite you in this segment to challenge us for the mantles. You will not succeed, and we will continue on, unceasing and unerring. Today's blasphemy comes to us via the Corinthian man replying to our post on Reddit in reference to lease being a place for binding and usurping a name. And the Corinthian man references 
events yet to come. Yeah, uh, they say that on the subject of Lias being a place for binding and usurping names, that's exactly what happens when uh, Aquia strips Cat of Squire and gives it to the Goblin Chider, um, which is a great point. Uh, the Corinthian man says this hinting is actually some foreshadowing world building that will be paid off later in the same book. That's phenomenal. Uh, that connection didn't occur to me, and it's a very good one, a very interesting one. Do not fault yourself. Though we two are the foremost experts on a practical guide to evil, even the Corinthian man did not notice this until their third or fourth reread of the guide, as I am only on my second and somehow feel the authority to have a podcast, mm -hmm. all is forgiven. I forgive myself. I'll forgive you as well. Uh, well, you know what they say, double forgiven, twice deified. That's exactly right. Uh, like we mentioned, this came to us through uh, our, this, the post on Reddit, um, which is one of several places to reach out to us. We read everything on Reddit, we reply to most of them, and we love seeing that level of that engagement. It's a ton of fun to see the comments that show up there, um, even if we don't bring them up every time in the actual episode. So thank you to the Corinthian man who's been a regular poster there and to everybody else who posts. Uh, but there are a couple other places to reach out to us if you have comments or questions about the show. You can send an email to us at thelongprice at gmail.com. You can send an X to us, I suppose tweets are called, at thelongprice. You can find us on Patreon if you want to pay money in order to message us at PGTEE. And you can send us personalized letters if you have our addresses. However, if you do, forget those, please. Please. You can also accept a quest to try to unseat us and from your new position of power, use the podcast to your own ends. However, we will not fall. Because as always, we stand unvanquished. Do you know Hayao Miyazaki is 82 years old? I did not know that. Found out today. Uh, they go to meet Agnes in a garden. Uh, you know, one of those fancy rich people gardens that is kind of just a whole complex into itself. Um, and for our benefit, Cordelia notes that it's pleasant out here among the hedges and flowers carefully cultivated by Proserin royalty. And, hey, that makes... Wait. Uh, you know, it's a minor thing, but hey, Cordelia, I don't think you or any of your predecessors were cultivating the flowers or hedges you underpaid servants to do that for you let's 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 uh let's not have any illusions here about uh who's doing the work in in proser especially when it comes to this kind of thing love you cordelia obviously you're the best but like come on i love her with my whole heart but she is perhaps the perfected embodiment of an inherently imperfect and wicked institution yeah. and it can show oh yeah Agnes is not dressed properly. Her what? simple blue dress shows more of her legs than is strictly acceptable in polite society. I know it's not, you can't tell because it's an audio medium. I'm covering my mouth in shock right now. Well, Cordelia would chide her for it, except she's named and named get to live by their own standards. If I may quote, if she wanted to go around naked and covered in blood, there was not a man or woman in Prosser who would even dare to comment on it. Which one? First of all, yeah. What are you going to do? Delta naked bloody magic person? Not to be a naked bloody magic person? 
unwise and even if they don't rebuke you for it, which I don't think Agnes would, society will because what are you doing? You're just wasting we, your time. Yeah. But more importantly, Cordelia is doing that thing, even in her presentation of the story to us, where she politely elides something distasteful. And here it's that it's not quite that there's not a man or woman in process who would dare to comment on it. There is not a man or woman in process who would dare to publicly comment on it. Because um, I, I am from a section of the Midwest where absolutely everyone will necessarily be kind to you in all of their interactions forever. But the degree, nuance, and flavors of the kindness can be used to express absolute loathing. Because we all know how to express ourselves in the mediums available in the media available to us. So uh write that one down. Be polite but have some uh careful nuance attached to the, that politeness if I ever come across a naked bloody magic person. Speak politely but carry a big name. Right, okay, sure. As Dread Emperor Roosevelt once said. <laughs> uh speaking of big names, I guess. Um so the auger has short hair it's in a short bob that hasn't grown since she became the auger um and cordelia is uncomfortable with this uh even though it is by her own admission a tame physical change compared to what many names or what other names can have happen to them uh and that you know we've, we've talked about this before and we'll talk about it again that named have their physical appearance match their self-conception of themselves and their conception of like what their story is and there, there's a lot to it but typically it seems like what that is is just a perfecting of what they already were or how they were already presenting um but this is talking about probably some more drastic changes uh and i don't know if you do you can you recall any instances of particularly drastic changes that come along with being named uh you know when somebody attained a name something really noticeable about their physical appearance changed. I don't think we can count, for instance, Captain here, because despite her first name being cursed, I, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation going on there, I think. I mean, I can just imagine that if you're like the subject of a Carly Simon song and so vain, you might be really hot. But other than that... I'm just trying to remember if there was, you know, the uh, what was his name? The, the fire... Kid. A scorched apostate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he have any kind of like flame situation going on once he got his name? I think he might have been perma burned, but yeah, maybe that was just he turned into a zombie. He right. dies right away, and everybody's sad yeah. about it. Well, Cat's uh, sad about it. Cat's sad about it. Also, all of her guards died, uh, and she, she talks with Nessie. Spoilers will be commonplace. <laughs> the the post spoiler warning is very good. Catherine stabs Black. Whoa. Um, yeah, I, I just I was trying to think if I could come up with any examples of a you know a particularly drastic change rather than a, a perfecting shift uh, that happens if not on screen then at least is mentioned on screen. Uh, I couldn't come up with anything, which isn't to argue with Cordelia necessarily. I just maybe I'm thinking of will be a losing argument even if she were right. somehow wrong. Right. It, it's more just I'm wondering if there are any egregious examples or if she is referring to the type of shift that we do know about and just is really uncomfortable with even that minor of a thing we'll have to keep an eye out on our inbox at thelongprice at gmail.com write in remind us of where we may have 
neglected to remember. Speaking of neglecting to remember, Agnes summoned everyone because a flock of turtle doves flew east this morning as the bells rung. Cordelia has to remind her cousin, you will have to explain this to me. And Agnes, whom I love, just says, ah, yes, I forget sometimes. One of your diplomatic couriers was intercepted. I just love her. It's not the thing where someone's such an expert they can't even understand how the common mind thinks. No, she's just a spacey little divination girl, and I love her. I do appreciate that she led in with the specifics, the, hey, a flock of turtle doves flew east this morning as the bell rungs, just, you know, watch out. And then was like, oh, okay, let, let me pull back a little bit and explain, rather than just giving the one of your diplomatic careers was intercepted without providing evidence of how she would know that. You know, you lead with the evidence. That's great. Nice job, Agnes. You, you presented this very well. I will always bet on Agnes Hassenbach. And Cordelia wonders if the stairway is still secure. The stairway? Yeah, there's a stairway. Cool. Also, there are elves in Callow. Two of elves? them. Uh, I'm curious about the stairway. I'm terrified of these elves. Those shouldn't be around the around like humans. They shouldn't be around the people of Callow. Okay, I can make this easy. Uh, they need stairs because the elevator is out of order. And mm-hmm. elves are the little guys who make toys at the North Pole with Santa Claus. Uh, okay. Which does mean that canonically, a practical guide to evil has Christianity in it because they celebrate Christmas. Yes, that is what that means. Good way to tie it all together for us. Uh, it's interesting here, or funny to me, I guess. There are elves in Callow, two of them. And Cordelia, we get this paragraph of her running through what that means. It's, oh, she allows herself to swear for the first time in a year, burning heavens. Uh, we can't. Okay, we can't jump to conclusions. Elves could leave their force temporarily. They're terrifying. We get some information later about how exact, how dangerous they are, just a couple paragraphs later. So she runs through this, and her conclusion is not they could wipe out the rebellion or they might kill someone no it's if there are elves duchess keegan might get distracted it's it's very funny that oh no what if this 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 woman who is very important for a lot of reasons might get distracted is the is the conclusion she has such a political mind she's not she's not dealing with the on the ground details the casualties the the threats it's just hmm, what's somebody in my position likely to do as a result of this circumstance? It's very, it's a very Cordelia response to two elves entering Callow. But also such a powerful response. We've seen Cordelia once before and heard about her barely more. We know she is powerful. We know she is good at what she does. We haven't really witnessed her glory by any means. But we know that she is a serious woman. And such a woman must be taken seriously. And we know she is very controlled. And that she relaxes control ever so briefly. That she has such a such an extreme contemplation and consideration and worry helps lend such weight to two elves. We've heard pieces of elves, but you know, Nock's grandmother might have eaten one once. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lend weight to the pattern by their species' long lives, according to Warlock, whatever that means. Great. No, Cordelia Hassenbach is concerned, and she is not a woman who is cheap with her care. Right. She. She's not she, a woman who is... I feel like there's a word that starts with F. She's not a woman who freely spends care. 
She's not frivolous with her care? She is not frivolous with her care. This is a, a woman who recently was too much steeped in the propriety of her position to wrinkle her nose slightly when disgusted with something. And two elves being in callow call, caused her to close her eyes and swear. Yeah, she's uh, <laughs> she's shook, as they say. Agnes can't tell why they left the forest. Because elves are strange. And then in a beautiful piece of poetic prose, she says that augurine at them is like trying to map the stars from a lake's reflection. And I just think that's beautiful. It's great. Put that in a piece of Mary Oliver poetry. Mary Oliver is one of my favorite poets. And if you're unfamiliar with her work, look up Worm Moon. I think that's a great place to start, even though we are six months away from the Worm Moon. And we get a little bit more information about exactly how scary the elves are. Um, there are only two elves, but that's terrifying because a dozen elf foot soldiers, the regular elf soldiers, could wipe out a company of human soldiers without losing a single man if they felt the inclination. A single emerald sword could do the same without even paying attention. I think that's our first reference to the emerald swords, if I recall mm -hmm. correctly. Uh, we'll learn... Yeah. We'll get a bit more about them later on. Not a whole lot about their function, just on how scary they are. Um, but knowing here we get that they are strong enough that one of them can wipe out a company without paying attention. Uh, and then we get one more bit about the elves, which is they were good in the broadest sense of the term. Uh, but that didn't change the fact that they saw everyone except heroes and other elves as insolent vermin. Uh there's a bit of a trend in the guideverse. For those of you who are new to the guideverse and are only listening to this podcast, oh. pardon? Get out. <laughs> Get out. Uh, and you're, you know, listening to this podcast is your only source of information on it for some reason. Um, this is a bit of a trend where things that are good are only so in the broadest sense of the term. Uh, they are aligned with the gods above in some way. They are aligned with other things that are good. But we see this a lot. There are people like, presently, William, and later, the Grilgrim, or the Saint of Swords, who are good, but are definitely not good people. They do some rough things. And the elves are like that, since they, uh, you know, are violently isolationist. Okay, we all know that I'm president of the Tariq Go Smother Yourself fan club. Mm -hmm. But even there, it feels rough putting him in the same school as... Billy, like oh, he sure. does a little plague work, but well, I mean, he's not racist about it. No, no, no. I, he's only in there in the again broad sense of the term. Good has an incredibly broad umbrella, and that's part of the point that both William and Grilgrim and the Saint and you know Cordelia and uh, the Kingfisher Prince are all under that same umbrella. They're all under the umbrella, and it's about to start raining cats and more cat. Oh. So, how do we know that the elves are uh, so holier and stronger than thou? Well, apparently everybody who comes within a half a mile of the Golden Bloom dies without warning. Oops. And you gotta respect it. When you're training an animal, when you're raising a child, when you're interacting with other people, it's really good if you can set a boundary and stick to it. They said, we're going to kill everyone who comes within half a mile. And they do. And I think that's a really respectable thing. It is healthy to establish boundaries. Uh, 
Good for the elves. And good for everyone else that I don't think the boundaries get violated in the entire series. Fair. Tragically, we leave behind the greatest character in the entire Practical Guide to Evil and are stuck instead with just the worst. William is hanging out with the exiled prince and the page and the bard, and he's moody. Uh, yep. That, that, I mean, that just generally describes Billy. Uh, he's upset, though, because let's see. He here. has a reason. Right. The conjurer is dead. The hunter is in two and also a prisoner. Uh, and uh, his good friend from the watch, Bregach, is likely strapped to a table in some dungeon until she could be dissected, is his guess. And I gotta say, remarkably accurate guess. That's basically literally what's going on with her right now. So nice job, Billy. And thief vanished. Yeah, I, you know, we don't know where she is. Wasn't going to mention her. It seemed rude. So, of course, with all of this trouble, we immediately get to William thinking about how he is a handsome man. Which, great job, Billy. Your friends are hurt and dead, but at least you're hot. It's important to note, he knows he's handsome, but... He also knows that the exiled prince must have been exceptionally vain because he's handsomer. <laughs> he's I I was handsome. I mean, the the people were interested in me before I became a hero, but this guy, he's really good looking, like exceptionally good looking. That's so gross that he must be so full of himself for that to be the case. It it's such a weird turnaround. Uh, you know, again, like we talked about with the way named look a decently fair assumption or at least a decently fair under potential for what's going on here but to go from i'm attractive but he's more attractive and therefore bad is very funny may i ungenerously read some extra toxic ideology into william's words here please the lone swordsman knows he's handsome because he attracted plenty of attention even before becoming a hero and I believe him also to be primarily heterosexual from what we see from him. Mm -hmm. And the, yes, we can acknowledge both being a remarkable person and being attractive can help one garner attention from those who are attracted. Yes. But since I hate William, have we considered how he's got a little bit of incel rhetoric here? Just in, well, you've got to be very handsome to attract attention unless you're rich and wealthy, which is the other way to do it, or a hero here, very important. But, you know, that's the only way I knew I'm handsome, because otherwise nobody would pay attention, because, they, you know, women only want one thing, hot, rich people, and that's toxic. It is, and also fair to throw it, William. I mean, we don't know enough to be able to say one way or the other, but I don't feel too bad about lumping him in with the incel crowd. It's William. He... I, he even if he's not if introduced to it he'd probably be like yeah i'm on board with that like right away <laughs> this guy's just the worst admittedly by your reckoning i am a chad but your reckoning is accurate you poor pathetic fools Ugh. yeah so we're talking about an encounter with captain and william says we already know she's a werewolf and we learn a little bit more about captain's curse mm -hmm. i've seen werewolves before swordsman the prince replied through gritted teeth. I've killed werewolves before. That abomination was something else entirely. She was as tall as an ogre, and she moved so fast I could barely see her. My men might have, 
My men might as well have been lambs for all the difference it made. Well, that's cute. Good for Captain. He's a special one. And also, absolutely terrifying. I love her. Oh, yeah. Now, we both think well of E.E. as a writer, right? We wouldn't be here otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. We would both gladly participate in discussion of placing E.E. as the best writer. I'm not saying we have to land there, but it's a valid conversation to be had, right? I I mean, he's worth bringing up. Would you be offended if I called him a lazy writer? In what sense? Well, you know how you're supposed to show and not tell? (laughs) Yes. In order to get his word count up, I assume, he's actually telling after showing. Okay. William considers how Paige is obviously attracted to the Exiled Prince and the Exiled Prince doesn't notice. Great, it's their whole dynamic. And he wonders if the Exiled Prince is an imbecile. And what we get on that thought the thought tag we get is William thought uncharitably. And I feel like the ad, adverb, pardon. Yeah. I feel like the adverb uncharitably is just kind of much like a greeting implied whenever William's around. You know? Now, that's not fair. You've read this chapter. You know how it ends. William's entire life at this point is a charity. He gets nothing out of any of the good he's doing. He is just a noble martyr. And his every every action of his is charity to everybody around him. And I will be taking no questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> will his sister be? Also, no. Again, thanks to his charity. Oh, I really can't let that one stand. William's the worst. William's the worst. Well, how about the evil legions? <laughs> uh, we find out that the ambush that was mentioned previously, that Captain uh, handled moderately well didn't go as well as they had hoped because or as well as the exiled princess had hoped because uh they had to retreat even after driving captain off because the Ironsides were ready uh the initial assault on their flanks great it went well uh but without explaining this william just sort of understands hitting a pracy legion on its flank with the element of surprise great that's one thing a ch- head-on charge into a prepared Ironsides front, uh, that's not going to go well. And that's without even mentioning the fact that Captain was there, presumably leading from the front, or at least engaged in the front. Yeah, uh, there's a lot going on. I can see why the more mobile Callowans, well, Helikans, decided, ah, the fight's over, we're done here. The Ironsides are scary, and also... As we know from a few chapters ago, many chapters ago, specifically good at dealing with enemy heavy cavalry. Kind of a rough matchup for the the Silver Spears here. But while it may have been a miscalculation to make that attack, the Exiled Prince will make no further miscalculations. He calculates like like a really bad math student. He understands that Squire's William's nemesis... And then in some ways she must be his match. But she's never led an army into battle before. As far as I know, you're the only hero she's ever fought. She is ill-equipped to deal with the likes of the Silver Spears. Yeah, he's got almost the right idea. Like, she is a little inexperienced in this sort of thing, even if her education is top-notch when it comes to named and warfare topics. Um, But it is worth remembering here, Prince... As far as I know, you're the only hero she's ever fought. In that same battle, she absolutely gutted Hunter like a fish. She, she gave him an extra torso. Uh, 
and survived an encounter where she was one of two named going up against one, two, three, four, five. The whole band was there at one point. Uh, and she came out of that pretty well unscathed, personally. Um, saying she's fought the Lone Swordsman only is uh, rather, like dramatically underselling her, her capabilities. Don't worry. To compensate, the Lone Swordsman oversells her because he says... The first time I met Catherine Foundling, she arranged the death of her four rivals in the span of a single night, and then threw me into a river after I literally split open her torso. Catherine got caught in a melee when she was trying to do some spy work. It's wild how this looks from William's perspective. She arranged the death of her four rivals. Uh, yep. Sure thing. All in the all according Catherine- to plan. The only thing Catherine Foundling arranges is an extra glass of wine at dinner. Very nice. Uh, and he goes on uh, here, William goes on to say, also she's got uh, another nascent named with her, um, you know, talking about Hockram here. And the reason he thinks that is because Hockram scrapped with the thief and walked away without any major wounds. Um, the thief is a non-combat name, to be clear here. And... Yeah, that so it's still true. Also, Hockram fought with Cat against Hunter and performed pretty well. So there's that. Uh, it is worth noting, like credit where it's due, William doesn't take this opportunity to mention his own success against Hockram to say... Oh, what happened? Uh, a major wound, one might say. I can't quite recall it offhand. Wow. We're <laughs> more like oh. hand off. Am oh I right? my goodness. <laughs> uh, and then William gets r- racist. Yeah, the bard swings in with a great suggestion. Hey, exiled prince, marshal named fully in your power, who's a lot of experience, duel Catherine one on one. You'll crush her. And then William starts going on about orcs are monsters, just sort of out of the blue. Or the green? Nice. Thank you. Both of his interlocutors exchange uncomfortable looks, and it offends the swordsman, which I gotta say, feels like a characteristic of all reactionary types on any aspect. Like, they've been the ones putting up with tolerance. Right. On most days, the swordsman would have let it go, but today? No. He was done playing nice. You think I'm prejudiced. The green-eyed man stated. This is not black. This is William. There are two green-eyed men. <laughs> They'll fix that soon. By the end of the book, there won't be any left. By the end of the series. Pardon. And the exiled prince replies flatly, I find your comments distasteful and unworthy of a hero. And I'm so glad to see some cosmologically good pushback, even though it's the most milk toast statement there is. It's such a classical neoliberal while i find his comments distasteful i need to work together with this man to, and like come on man all He's, yeah all of this type of person they are all monsters and the response is can't we be civil about this i know you want to kill them all but be polite about it <laughs> and of course william's follow-up to that is well, the bard tries to break this up because she wants the heroes to be working together, yada, yada. Uh, and William comes back with just the weirdest response. Um, first of all, if you recall, one sentence ago, he says, you think I'm prejudiced. 
And now he says, you know what I find distasteful? When a rich brat from the free cities comes and tells me greenskins aren't monsters. Which means he's saying, I am prejudiced. And this whole this whole comment here is literally just, oh, you, you think racism is bad? Well, what if I told you that being against racism is actually the bad thing? He has no argument here. He has no meat to what he's saying. He's just, nope, orcs are bad. And if you think they're not bad, then maybe you're the bad one. And that's his entire point. <laughs> he's so bad. He's so awful. Maybe we can find a compromise. What if we just kill all of the orcs, but feel a little bad about it? Huh? I don't think William would go for that. He feels pretty good about killing orcs. Well, what if he kills all the orcs, but feels bad in general? Can he do that? I mean, yeah, that's kind of his whole, his MO. Uh, the thing is, I can't even feel good about him feeling bad, because it's so self-righteous. Yeah, Stop reveling in it. His feeling bad is weird angst based on things he did. So, he brings up some points, some of which are grounded in reality, which is part of the insidiousness of all hateful rhetoric. There are often, in actually there are frequently, pieces that are based in distorted realities, not to lend any power to these screeds, but they draw from the world to strengthen the argument. And he brings up some realities of war, and actually of orcish culture and biology, he says, you know what the orcs do when they come here? They rape, murder, and pillage. They even eat our dead like we're cattle. And you know what? This is an invading army. And armies do, regardless of regulation, rape, murder, and pillage. And orcs do eat the dead, though they're pretty culturally sensitive to that issue these days. And it is a cultural thing here. I, when your biologies are just different, it's cultural. Yeah. Hmm. But but Paige says, well, we get legion regulations forbid both rape and pillage. The page interrupted hotly. She's, she's right. They do. And I'm sure both have occurred, despite that. Brutal realities of warfare and such. But she says this hotly. And while hating the racism is one thing, where's her investment in just defending the legions as an institution? I'm... I, I, I just find it an interesting. I get her sentiment, and I'm not saying I don't understand why this happens. I'm saying she's not making the argument she wants to make right now. She's fighting in part when she should contest the whole. Well, I mean, I think there's a couple things here. First, she's flustered and is throwing out what little defense she can she thinks she can easily make. I think is a big part of it. Hey, I know this one. I know a counter to one part of what you're saying, which, again, you're right. No, they can't do that. That's illegal. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's a it's also a weak way to argue against this kind of hatred to roll up with. Oh, actually, this one statistic you threw out is wrong. That's never going to amount to anything. But I think she's flustered and is arguing hotly here. Maybe she is legitimately good and really opposed to racism and doesn't know like the the williams brand here and doesn't know how to argue against it but also william was pretty insulting to the exiled prince and she loves him so she might just be angry about Mm. that and isn't really sure how to express that because she goes from the actually the regulations to uh the ad hominem of and who do you think you are you callow and hick just a half-rate hero from a backwater and is that's great hey 
you're being racist, like all you backwards people. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I think racism is really bad, which is why Appalachia is a terrible place. But what? Yeah. It, Grow up. Appalachia um, is, I want to go on record, Appalachia is cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, and William comes back and has this whole spiel. And I, it, I think it's worth staying here with all of the caveats that need to be said beforehand. Just because it's well-written doesn't mean it's good or supported or this isn't some weird, subtle dig at EE somehow for being able to do this. It's a, a compliment. William is an incredibly well-written bigot in a lot of ways. You can see in the way he talks, especially in this chapter more so than the other ones, because we're starting to get him to actually explain some of his thoughts. The confirmation bias and the things he says is so very present it's so easy to see without it being just like and here's my confirmation bias you know he talks there's there's an omission here there's this casual omission of the empire as a whole as an entity of human legionaries of goblins even it's there everybody is doing the bad things the empire is the bad entity here and the empire is frankly what makes the orcs seem so bad to him because without the Empire, would the Orcs be busy in Callow? Probably not. Would they be as aggressive towards Callow? Probably not. He, Most of the Orcs in Callow are, I mean, frankly, not to erase their culture or anything, but from the perspective of the Callowans, basically just humans with different color skin and they're big and strong. They're legionaries. They follow the regulations. They go to local bars in big cities and exchange news and drink and hang out with their friends and he just refuses to see all of these things and gossip to no end right exactly <laughs> he refuses to see all of this he refuses to um acknowledge the fact that the only time he sees orcs is when they are in the legions of terror he doesn't see the orcs on the steps he doesn't see civilian orcs because he's never had the opportunity and so his what he's exposed to is a specific type of orc who is trained and aimed at Callow. And he takes this to mean all orcs are bad and doesn't make the connection that because all the orcs I see are imperial. The, you know, obviously he doesn't like the Empire. Very obviously. He's in a rebellion against them. He hates the Empire. He hates the Legionaries. But the focus on the orcs is confirmation bias written so well. And, like, I don't know. The, the way Billy, Billiam's presented, he is a well-written character. And we hate him because of that. Like, the, the hatred is not, oh, this character is poorly written from, like, just a literature standpoint. He's awful because he's a very realistic bigot. And it, it's hard to read at times because of how realistic he is. He just also happens to have an angel wing sword that can cut people very cut through shields and people. So you know, there's a fantasy layer to it <laughs> that makes it just seem like we, I don't know. There's there's some some layers here, but he is he is a rough character because of that. But he it's it's very well done. And some of his reasoning can be very well not even translated into the modern world, but just brought in. We see certain elements of his arguments being wholesale lifted from arguments about the various merits of various cultures or technology or the, what have you. He tells us, orcs don't make cities. They don't trade or farm. All they do is kill, eat hot chip, and lie. Sorry. Kill and teach their whelps the same. And you know what? Orcs don't make cities. They don't farm. They do actually trade, but 
we'll, we'll just leave that one inside. But by making city building and farming the benchmarks for valid civilization, all of a sudden they can't have a valid civilization. And we saw, particularly in the age of exploration, but throughout human history and very recognizable in modern Western history, the invalidation of various encountered cultures and societies based on how they failed, that verb being intentionally chosen by the people making the argument, right. failed to reach certain benchmarks of Western society. But technology is not a linear progression. The shape of society certainly isn't a linear progression. The organization, what have you. And these don't make something more or less valid, more or less civilized, or more or less advanced. Yes, at the time of the Age of Exploration, Europe enjoyed better weapons technology than most, all, of the world. But European astronomy lagged behind certain advances in the Americas, lagged behind certain advances from millennia ago in the Near East. The C-section was invented in Africa centuries, millennia, before it reached Europe. Does that mean that Africa, uh, or rather the portions of Africa, and I'm sorry I don't have more specific factoid in mind, I didn't realize I was making this argument till now, but that those regions were just plain and more advanced and superior to Europe? In that aspect, they were. They were more advanced at C-sections, and I would say superior at C-sections. Because if Europe tried one, they would cut a woman to pieces and kill her child. Oh, did William invent C-sections? Oh, you know, I will see later on. Uh. Not a great phrasing. But the thing is, we encounter technologies at different times in different parts of the world. We have different societal structures. The Mongols, the great Mongol Empire, beginning with Genghis Khan, didn't assimilate much of the technologies or lifestyles of the people they conquered, though they enjoyed the fruits of those technologies and labors, there was nothing lacking in their nomadic lifestyle in, well, there was nothing lacking in it. They lived full and complete lives. They didn't need to start building cities in Mongolia, which was very big, to be valid. It wasn't better for them. It, and is, it is worth mentioning that that what you've described is true under pretty much only Genghis. After Genghis, that shifted pretty pretty rapidly. But yes, your point stands. And it doesn't uh, invalidate their previous lifestyles to have done that. Right. And that Ulaanbaatar stands now doesn't mean that cities are the way to go. Also, I'm not terribly familiar with Mongolian city planning. Fair. It, yeah. One of the yeah. It, it's. <laughs> Just look at how a lot of cultures, a lot of the great powers in the world at the same time function differently in fundamental societal levels. The United States has a president with extreme executive authority. Germany has a parliamentary system where, though powerful, Olaf Scholz isn't an elected king. And in fact, sort of not directly elected. Uh, it's different. Though... Actually, the United States has a less representative system than a lot of places. And then look at a state like China, where the governmental system is, again, entirely different and certainly less representative. While I have strong opinions on 
the value of representative structures if we have a government that doesn't make China less civilized or not a valid society. And it certainly doesn't make Chinese people uncivilized or not valid. Grow up, William. Everybody is going to establish benchmarks to compare societies based on setting their own society ahead of others when they're when you're you know looking to do that when you want your society to be best you're going to establish benchmarks that do that and it's pretty easy to do the more different a society is from your own such as when you are dealing with uh semi-nomadic or at least pastoral depth warriors compared to the pretty agrarian halloween peasants like yep you can draw a lot of differences there which makes it very easy to build many many benchmarks that make the orcs look bad that doesn't mean anything it's meaningless the orcs could very easily say oh wow the Calwins don't know how to travel like look how stupid they are they can't they can't just get up and leave when things need to shift because they're stuck to the like it's so easy and okay but Calwins is stupid well, Paige yeah. told us i mean obviously uh, <laughs> it, it's it's so easy to compare any two societies or even two communities within the same society by a benchmark that it makes one seem better and then slightly switch that to all of this is honestly too far into the weeds and also tangential to the point because this is again doing what we just said page does which is narrowing in on one detail and arguing against it billiam sucks he's a bigot everything he says is couched in that he's confirming his own biases he is using hatred to fuel more hatred uh, I think we're all agreed, and everybody can, who reads this knows Billiam is the bad guy, I hope. And if you don't, um, uh-oh. Maybe don't stop listening to the podcast because you need opposition in your life, but uh, think about what it says about you. Just consider. Just consider. And uh, with that, William makes a, a big exit, yelling something about, watch out, they're going to eat your friends, and then you'll think they're monsters too. And he goes up to pout on the roof. And I suppose now it's time to dive into angst. Yeah, following this uh, abrupt end to an, a conversation here where the, the heroes are planning their next steps forward, William kind of Williams all over the place and climbs up to the roof to stare pensively into the distance. Um, and we get, you know, we... we dunk on him for being a anime protagonist all the time and uh he kind of exemplifies that here with this the the rage had left him by the time he got to the roof but he still just stands up there in the cold and um it, it, in the text we get that uh it wouldn't be the first time that he was left cold and alone potentially on a roof that's unclear um but it says that his temperament and the nature of his name tended to put him in this position and Yes, those are both true, but I feel like the and maybe isn't the right word there. Uh, there's a reason he got the name that he did. It, this is, I, I, I can't help but imagine that this was a dramatic, you know, staring young man before he uh, acquired the name. This was just sort of how he handled things. His temperament is why he ended up with the lone swordsman rather than the vengeful swordsman, even though that would have also made perfect sense, or the the uh, uh, martyr of the blade, you know, any kind of, any number of things that also... Or the gregarious swordsman. Right. Friend to all and yeah. all the friend. 
that not yeah that also very well describes William and just isn't focused enough for him. Um, so yeah, it, it makes perfect sense that his temperament and his name kind of blended together. That's how that works. And owing a great part to this, he needs to have a moment of doubt while shepherded along by the shepherd who shepherds. And on this roof, as the bard comes up, he speaks to her without looking after a time thinking about how the common folk are avoiding them. Not just the Silver Spears, who are foreign mercenaries, but they're avoiding us, the heroes, the Calwyn heroes, the, the people who are slaughtering people in front of them and making war. And mm-hmm. he doesn't understand why. Yeah, it, it's kind of a weird moment where the bard is saying one thing and William is unsure, but the uncertainty, he, he kind of lands on a weird bit of uncertainty in my mind. Um, He's tired, he's exhausted when he says, does that, the pricey occupation, matter to most people? As long as it's easier to feed their children, why do they care if it's pricey? And the bard responds to that with a a comment that just because they're stronger or better organized doesn't mean they're right. Which, it's fair, that is a, you know, that's a true statement in my book. Being efficient does not make you right. It means it makes you effective. And those are two very different arguments. But William balks at this. William wonders. He says, doesn't it? And for of all the things for him to doubt, whether it's his method or, uh, well, mostly just his methods or his bigotries or any number of things, the thing that he hesitates on, the thing he's unsure about is whether might makes right when talking about the precy of all people. It, it's such a, I, I don't know, this, this, I don't know that I would say this is out of character for him, but it's definitely on the fringe of how I understand William to to function in the world. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Well, he needs to have this moment of grappling with the realization that I don't think he's had the chance to have. That there's a lot that's better under the precy, and that isn't simply invalidated by their arguable illegitimacy. The question of what have the precy ever done for us well, they built the highways and et cetera, et cetera. Until now, he's always just dismissed that out of hand. That's a straw man argument that no one would actually give credence to. Who cares if our lives are better? They're fundamentally worse simply because this is the worst thing because it's not a free callow. He never gave that any mind, but apparently people actually do. He's out of his echo chamber. And his echo chamber was, we'll see later, really. We'll see later that his echo chamber was first all the voices around him he didn't heed, and then brought home by the abominable welcome that the opposing side had somehow. It'll make sense when we get there. Yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying. To me, the, the thing that stands out, though, is just because they're stronger or better organized, not not just because they feed people, not just because they are less oppressive. No, it's about strength and organization and that's what he hesitates on. That that's the that's the point for me. I, I know this whole the larger context of this conversation is very much about how the average Calwin's life under praise versus the average Calwin's life under the king or the queen. Um and I, I think it's just that that's the point he sticks on out of all the possible you know, weak spots in his argument, all of the all of the possible vulnerabilities that that's the one he gets stuck on, and that that's the one that the bard uses. Well, I think it just says a lot about wh- how he views 
strength, I guess, and what it means to be stronger and what you use that strength for. I, it, it, there, I, I don't know that I can follow this thread very far, but there's a, a bit of hats like, well, what's the point of having strength if you're not using it to help Callow in this discussion? Silence me if I am wrong, but he's debating what matters to people if it's easier to feed their children. He's worried about material realities, which I've talked about before, are a really cool central point in this book because like the real world, so much is based on can I eat? He's saying, who cares if it's who cares if the pricey line their pockets so long as it's easier to feed our children? And it's the bard who moves the conversation to strength and organization. She carefully sidesteps his argument because you can't argue directly with it is easier to keep their children fed, apparently. But because they're stronger or better organized doesn't mean they're right. Ah, look, the arguments about their strength and organization, which do contribute to the feeding, but no, they've got these organizational advantages, and we both know that there is no virtue in a state being organized or not. There's just efficiency and utility, but you can do evil things badly or good things badly or good things well or... But the moral argument is no longer present. Now William can come around to the point. And when she brings that up, he immediately abandons that argument of people having things easier. Mm-hmm. And he's moved on to, hey, nobody's more free. No longer is it, are my ends something people desire? It's, have I achieved any ends? And will I? And now it's an argument the bard can move forward on. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's It's, yeah, it's part of a, rhetorical strategy more than making the the main point here at the beginning Uh, the part of all people right oh yeah shocker i guess uh yeah so there is that you know i haven't accomplished anything noteworthy yet i haven't i haven't made a big change but there have been consequences and that's where this really is going and the bard does uh tackle that in an interesting way yes she does william asks if we lose what have i accomplished except filling a few graveyards and almorava decides, not even as her full argument, but she brings in a, first, I'd argue those deaths were all well-deserved. They're an occupying force, Willie. They don't get to annex another country and then whine when it fights back, even if it's 20 years later. She makes quite the point there, sure. They're an occupying force, and that, at certain levels, in a lot of paradigms, I would agree, you can absolutely use to say, justifies their deaths. But that would... That argument only stands if it's the Precy who are dying, and it's not just Precy who are dying. Callow is dying, and she very carefully moves off that topic. William's worried about the graveyards being filled, and she says, no, 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 we're killing Precy, and that's okay. Don't worry that we're dying. The Precy are in the grave, who cares? And the Precy means the orcs. And, you know, that's not even people anymore to William, because he's the worst. And it's also, if I lose, what have I accomplished except filling a few graveyards? Yes, you're killing a lot of people. And even if you are saying, even if they're both falling back on the sort of philo- philosophy that you can only actually account for what you directly do and that everything else is ethically beyond your permit, like it doesn't even matter. Uh, you can't you can't hold yourself accountable for the choices other people make. In this case, yeah, if the Precy kill Kaloans, that's the Precy fault and I'm blameless, which... I think is a naive way to look at things, but it, you know, you could use that argument that 
or they could be using that philosophical standpoint for this discussion, fine. But the consequences are not just the deaths of Precy, even if you ignore the deaths of, of Callow. When you pull up a massive levy force, which they have done, farms don't get tended. When you pull up people into a, a, a military, taxes don't get levied in the same way. When an occupying force is pulled into war footing, martial law, more aggressive policing, like all of these things are realities. And even within the framework that they're talking about, it's their decision to pull Callowans away from their jobs and pull people away from food production, pull people into dangerous situations. It's not just killing, it's actively making life in Callow worse. They're making, they're turning Callow into a war zone again. It's, war does more damage than just the soldiers it kills as terrible as that alone is. And they both completely skate over that entirely, which fits very well with what the Bard is trying to do here. She's focusing this conversation. She is using this conversation as a tool. And uh, William just won't think about that because he's William. Well, you do have to understand also that all true Callowans would make the choice to fight Praise. So anyone who isn't willing to face the consequences of fighting Praise isn't a real Callowan, making them no better than Praise, meaning... They don't get a vote. And I Fair. know that everyone who deserves a vote will vote the way I say, because otherwise they wouldn't deserve a vote. Thus and therefore, it's almost time for a contrition bomb. And yeah, the, the conversation goes on with, uh, with the Bard making her main point, the main reason she is behind this rebellion, the main thing that she wants William to see. And it is, I would say, a stretch. And also very... She claims it's taking the long view. I think it is short-sighted, but it's very in-fitting with somebody who is trying to represent the gods above story in here and trying to nudge things in that direction. So her her argument is saying, yes, most Calwins are doing better now than they were prior to the conquest, which William, of course, is <laughs> confused about. Uh, if you're attempting to disagree with me, I'm sorry to say you're not doing very well. And the bard comes back and says, the way things are, this isn't praise. This isn't praise historically, and it's not how praise will be in the future. This is explicitly militia and the Black Knight. This is uh, this is Amadeus of the Green Stretch and Aliyah. Like it is these two individual people. Um, I, I said militia and the Black Knight first, but it's more important that it is Maddie and Aliyah because these two people are making the decisions. And William, of course, says uh, they are praise, which, yes, they are. The Bard agrees right now. They're going to die eventually. They're going to be taken down by heroes. They're going to... Uh, their reign nope, will... No, they're not. I, well, I've okay. read the book. In theory, they're going to be taken down by heroes, and their their reign will come to an end in some way. And, I mean, even if it's an assassin from an internal assassin, which uh, they say the opposition in praise. Right. Exactly. And this is the crux of her argument that their policies will not survive them, uh, which William cottons onto here. She says that he is fighting the dread empire, regardless of who's in charge of it. And that eventually another, horrific madman will climb the tower and Kala will suffer for being part of the empire at that point. 
And sorry, I know that this is a long time to summarize her argument, but this is very important to what's going on in the story right now. And it's also such a, a hard thing for a non-named person to be on board with, I think. Um, it makes perfect sense to the bard. We know what her goal is. It works on William. We know what his goal is. But for me, rebel when that happens then. If you truly care about Callow, then take advantage of where Callow is right now. Don't throw away Callowan lives on the chance that Black and Militia will die soon or eventually. I, I don't know. There's There's so much of this that is... There are people now who are suffering more because of your actions than they would if you hadn't done something, and you're doing it for the hypothetical situation down the road where some other people will be slightly better off because of the decisions you're making now and the people that are suffering now. And that kind of viewpoint is very much... I mean, he's got the fingerprints of the of the gods above on it all over. Well, you got to be... It's about evil more than the results. It's about the good and evil. It's the one decision that matters. And it's just a tough thing to see. And William just kind of moves on a bit to talk about his sword. Um, but, and uh, you know, to sort of round this all off, tie this all off on from where I'm saying here, also it'd be easier to rebel against anybody who's not black and militia. They're unbelievably efficient if you're not dealing with black you're dealing with a black knight who uses his soldiers as meat shields and fights on the you know if you're not dealing with militia you're dealing with somebody who's going to be getting anteaters to come after you or whatever nonsense you would have a better chance of succeeding in a rebellion against any number of pairs and a chancellor involved as well who would you know weaken things than you would against these two who are and their calamities who are unbelievably effective at dealing with exactly what you're doing right now. It's worth noting that there are very effective agents and priests even in even outside of Black and Militia. And we see that Marshall Nim inherits a lot of good things from Black and is competent herself. Which is not a argument against your point, but it is a Nim is Nim is a tough case though because she is explicitly she's still tied to Elia. And she is explicitly the heir to Maddie's role. Like, she is the next in line, which is always going to do something like that. And she was raised up under him in his reforms, and everybody in the Legions basically worships him. So it, that's a weird case. I don't disagree that there are other efficient people, other effective people. Um, really the point you're making, but it has right, to be right. stated yes, before absolutely. someone writes in and thinks they caught us. <laughs> I completely agree. Because, like all good podcasts... We take an oppositional and hostile view to our listenership. Naturally. They, you know, parasocial, more like antisocial, am I right? Yes. Good. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the crux of this argument that leads, or eh, not an argument, a, a debate, which is mostly just the bard telling William how it needs to be. Uh, and then William kind of pivots a bit uh, to talk about himself. It's almost a, a non sequitur, except that. Uh, it all kind of ties into his motivation for this rebellion in the first place. Um, he talks about some of his his early childhood. Uh, we he, we you know he sworn to the choir of contrition. The bard knows that that means he did something unforgivable. Um, and then he mentions that he actually only picked up the sword in the first place to impress girls. Uh, you know, very teen boy you know, kind of an amusing little little thing to humanize William here. Um, but he also told Kat that he was using a sword as soon as he could walk. So I have to say, the guy's a little precocious. Speaking of gendered things, he 
in discussing his past, says that it was a that it was not a wealthy life, but that they were better off than most. He tells us, I was going to inherit the trade since my sister didn't care for it. And this very small hard to notice in the guide verse, but I want to express again appreciation. Look, full medieval society, and the only reason the boy is getting the business is because his sister doesn't care for it. Because why would gender play a part in it? It's fun. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's, I mean, there's two layers to that. There's, she's the eldest and gender didn't play a part in her inheriting it, but also she's a woman who got to choose specifically. She got to say, True. no, thank you, which is also a big thing. It's not just, also yes, you. person who got to choose. Yeah. Not to cover up the less enviable roles allowed to women in history, but, a you know. A faux medieval society where you get to choose your career and it doesn't have to match up with your parents. Yes, I mean that's also noteworthy for sure. It, there's this little sentence does uh, say a lot about Callowan life, and you know that, it's great. Um, but what isn't great is the story that follows. Uh, Ooh, I got it. Primogeniture? I hardly know her. There. Perfect. Uh, and that's all the time we have. Okay. Um, the. The story that follows is a rough one. Uh, we'll keep it real brief. Everybody that's listening has hopefully read it before. But uh, William was doing his best to you know, family business, yada, yada. His sister was getting involved in, with some rebels. And uh, William knew that the Precy came down hard on that sort of thing, including two family members. And out of fear, out of concern for his parents, out of uh, a number of things... He, which he admits is basically boils down to him being selfish. He puts an end to his sister's attempts at rebellion. And he, oh, sure, you might be thinking he reported her to the Precy. Uh, no, to quote William, I stabbed her with a table knife right in the neck. She was dead in moments. He just there's no reporting. There's no talking to. He just walks he just murders her he just kills her basically in cold blood because uh let's see here he was thinking of the tanner's daughter he had a thing for and how selfish his sister was being this guy we talk a lot about william and his many flaws in his bigotry in his hatred in his short-sightedness in his violence and because we are human and you know social creatures we also come down to there's a gut revulsion at the, at sororicide, uh, you know, at, at what he does here that really makes everything about him much more personal while also distancing himself, like making it harder to empathize em empathize with him because of how heinous what he does. And it gets kind of worse. Um, we get a description of him figuring out what to do with the body because if you have a corpse on hand, you've got to deal with it somehow. And usually dealing with it does not mean letting anyone know about it. And so we get a short paragraph description of how he processes the carcass, which I, I have a comment written here, and it is uh, verbatim, dude. And I know he's looking back on a difficult time, and it's a little unhinging of a moment, but as he's describing this, the next words are, the laughter froze in his throat. Would that he could choke on it, but he'd let merciful ends like. Would that he could choke on it, but he'd left merciful ends like that behind him long ago. Laughter is not a healthy and considered reaction to horror. He's had time to consider and process and 
such, but there is there is difficulty in his soul. Uh, yes, including just the distance from from this story, you know, temporally from when it happened, has also created like this weird, maybe not weird, uh, sort of psychologically disturbing distance from it because without getting into the graphics of him um, preparing the body for disposal. Which, if you want them, are in the chapter. Yep. And hopefully you've just read them. I'm sorry. There is a phrase here that I hope isn't too bad, but the legionaries show up, and when they arrive, he is, or he was, to quote William, telling this story to another person, I was about to start putting the meat in bags. Keeping in mind that the meat here refers to his sister's body that he has been um, being violent with. This man is troubled, which we have known for a long time, but this scene is brutal in so many ways. And just the distance, not her body, not uh, not the remains or the corpse. No, the meat. He's so distant that all he's thinking about is the flesh that he is moving and he, he just moves on from that and like you said has such an unhealthy relationship with this memory that he try he laughs but and is upset that he doesn't choke on that laughter i appreciate compartmentalization in the moment it's not necessarily it's hard to call it healthy but it's it can be productive to compartmentalize in the moment it gets you through things but really not good to simultaneously never deal with something nor let it go now that i'm arguing he should let this go but no he has no i mean we know william does not have a healthy relationship with any person with yeah with anything with no memory with memory or people or ideas he is a deeply disturbed person and this this chapter these this the two-thirds of this chapter that focus on william are unsettling they're they're gross because he is so uh, you know, pardon my French, but goofed up in the head, and it is, you know, it can be, it can be kind of hard to read some of his stuff because of how he is. It, it's, it's horrific. He is such a straightforward bad guy, but it's never in a way. Well, that's not true. In this instance, it's not just in a like cartoonishly evil. He is just like a broken person making very, very, very bad decisions constantly. Like he is choosing to do these things and that got him into some trouble and continues to get him in trouble i'm curious Mm -hmm. the guard showed up and figured everything or rather the guards had figured everything out the uh hand had already been tipped and they were showing up to collect the sister which there was no need for and so they collected william instead and after they got through dealing with all of the family members and co-conspirators they went back to William, clapped him on the shoulder, said he wouldn't hang. He'd done his duty to the Empire. He was an example to all Callowans. Assured him that there'd be no issue with his inheritance and set him free. And I'm just curious, is this not the kind of thing that should have reached Black? I'm not saying it did because uh-huh. the lines of communication are not going to be perfect unless Scribe's involved. And Scribe is only near omnipresent. But this is a compelling story. I'm horrified by it. That makes it strong. That's a I've, good point, yeah. And if Black heard of it, why did he do nothing? Or do we just have to assume he didn't? 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't believe he would have tried to set up a hero for Catherine that far in advance. Yeah, I, this is a while ago. I, I, was there a, a timeline on this do we have, like a number of years ago? Or it doesn't look like it. He's presumably pubescent, because that feels like the appropriate sororicide for a girl age. Uh, also, yeah, trying to impress girls with a sword indicates, uh, you know, a certain minimum age. But no maximum age. Swords are always cool. Right, exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I was just trying to maybe place it with something going on. But yeah, it, maybe this just slipped through the cracks. Uh, because, it, you know, the person that found him may have not seen this for the traumatic event that it was, but rather as the upstanding actions of a good citizen, which doesn't bear reporting. That's just what you want to expect from people. So it may have just not made its way to Black, because, yeah, I, if Black heard this story, I have a feeling William would not have survived much longer. Or at least he'd have been checked in on, because maybe he would be the origin of a uh, fallen... I can't imagine you know, that William I know, would but If Black said, hey, William, tell me about yourself, and William just immediately started talking about needing to murder everybody and dismember orcs or whatever. I will propose that... Uh, he plainly had done a lot of processing on his sister, uh-huh. but perhaps the game of the like, telephone's not the right word. The game of multi-step scry to reach the commanding officer, the Soninka who released him. The story became he was found having slain his sister, rather than he was found unblinking and blood spattered with. A series of, I'm just assuming, plastic bags. I don't care about the setting. Right. Well, yeah, that or cloth bags with blood dripping out of them. But it, it's, I can, you, I, I, can, I agree. I can very easily see the report reaching Scribe and or Black that says something like, a, uh, a rebel cell was crushed when uh, a member of the cell turned them over and, or you know, murdered another, probably wouldn't use the term murdered as a legal term, killed the the other leader or, you know, something like that where it's, you family relationships aren't even mentioned because that doesn't matter to the person who found it. You know, there's, there are a number of ways this could get reported where it seems like, yep, just a, a Precy sympathizer doing Precy sympathizer stuff. Back turn to scribe. Already the Calwins are beginning to support Precy interests. That's five years ahead of our plans. Right. What could possibly be causing them to integrate so quickly? Yeah. So Bill is Bill. Oh, yeah. And the Bard has what I, at the moment, believe to be an honest reaction, despite all the millennia she has seen. Yeah. Um, w- William, we know, has been carving up Precy officers to send you know, a, uh, a statement to Precy as a whole. And the rest of his party is disgusted by that because they're people. And uh, this includes the Bard, and William explains that, yes, they should be disgusted. It is awful. It's foul. It's horrible. And then he finishes this little paragraph with, and I'll do it again and again and again until Callow is free. And to me, this reads like basically, yeah, I, I do the disgusting thing because I had practice with my sister, I'm able to do these awful, horrible things because I did it once as a kid to my family member. Like, he is just horrific that that that's the defense. It's not even a defense because he doesn't think it needs a defense. That's is 
just a simple explanation for why he's able to do these horrible things. It's because he's done them before and he'll keep doing them. Gosh dang it. I hate to... No, I don't. I really enjoy getting us off track. And I notice interesting yet inverted parallels between Bill and the Grilgrim. Both of them have some big on-screen atrocities. Most interestingly to me at the moment are the merciful plague of the Grilgrim and the carving up of officers. I don't believe either of them find or would find what they've done to be particularly pleasant. Both are openly not thrilled to be causing such horror. William wallows in it as a foul abomination that he whose hands are already stained can at the very least take the damning blame for because it must be done by someone and he's going to do the wretched unspeakable. And the Grilgrim seems to instead comfort himself with knowing that he is working the will of higher beings and though it be unpleasant, it is what must be done and he will be and he will be able to answer blamelessly to those who demand it. They come at abomination from the opposing positions of saint and sinner. They do horrors for good and for... Well, they do horrors for good, but only one of them does horrors which then are good. And it's an interesting complexity. Yeah, I mean... It... I, we get a little bit more explanation from William about what exactly is going on with him in just a minute, and we'll get to that um, for sure. But the 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 split of like uh, Tariq working to destroy at the point where the least amount of damage is done, and William working to destroy until there's nothing evil left standing as payment it, yeah there, there's a couple there's some nuance there but you both serving different choirs and with different means but sort of this in you know different ends but this this willingness to do anything for the purpose of those ends there's a a, a neat not a parallel yeah I, I don't think but a, a conversation to be had there dialectic there you go that's a good one hmm. i should have called the podcast the dialectic of practical evil Next, well, our next one when we do our re-re-read. Join us on podcast guys discuss the dialectic of practical evil, where a Hegelian and a sensible person talk about erratic erratus, a practical guide to evil. Yeah, you didn't know you're in that when you opened this episode, you were in for some Hegelian bashing, but it's always <laughs> a good day for it. There it is. The bard responds to William's admission, his his next step in his fall or in in recovering from his fall as much as he's able not with judgment not with uh encouragement no, that's a different choir oh sorry yeah uh but with sadness um and we get this a couple times in this chapter she is distraught she is uh devastated by what is happening to william in her view and his story um it is hard to say, and we've discussed this before, and we'll continue to discuss this, how much she's actually torn up by this as somebody so directly tied to the gods above, um, it, how much she is at odds with the goals of the choirs is questionable. But the way she responds to William is with sadness. There's something I want to 
raised, but I don't think it's a... I don't have a discussion on it unless you see something in it. Okay. He tells us that after all that, I went a little mad afterwards, went into the wilds, almost starved. But then I saw an angel, and it said it would never forgive me. Powerful stuff, really. Oh, yeah. But I'm just wondering if there is some kind of worthwhile parallel here between his story here and the story of Aquea and Kat. Because she does the unspeakable. She does something, you know, arguably worse than Sororicide, which is to say city side and war. And she also meets someone who is something of an eldritch and a noble figure who is above all else, even if she's not there yet. But Catherine's working on that story. There are threads of it through her, as there are in all names. And Catherine says she will never forgive Aquia. And Aquia has to, learns to develop within that damnation into exactly what Catherine needs from her, and yet is never free of the perdition she has been promised. Much like we see William is not free, because he's got some inside info. They already told me where I'm going after I die, and it's not the nice place, which is an ooh. And is our first major view of guide soteriology because it doesn't come up much. But is there a parallel worth investigation? Or is it just worth a note? Or was it not worth a note? And have I wasted everyone's time? Uh, yeah, that's a tough one because you there's an inverse there's an inverse situation there because William sees the angel and is not forgiven by the angel. Aquia is sees the cat and is not forgiven, but then Ah, Aquia sort of ascends into a similar position herself permanently as part of her punishment. Uh, and there's also the simple, I can never be forgiven for both of them, but I try to do what I can. Um, it's not for forgiveness, it's for doing what you can for your side. Um, but Aquia, the way she handles it is very much like she tries to do good, and I'm talking lowercase g here, as, like, almost trying it out. Does this help with my guilt? Does this help with my, what I, you know, is this my debt to society or whatever nonsense? Um, it, it's, I don't know, there there might be something to be said for that. The problem being, drawing a parallel between Ubwa, whom we love, who is, a, well, maybe that's a strong term. We love as a character who, who does so much in the series is around from day one through the very end is, uh, has such narrative weight in so many ways, both diegetically and from the perspective of us, the reader. And William is bad and is Kat's rival now, but he doesn't last. And so drawing that parallel as a jumping off point for Ubwa could work, but I worry about putting too much emphasis on it in a way that minimizes the narrative weight of Eris, Flash, our, our ghost friend. That's very fair. Either way, both of their stories are sad, and we get yeah. a view of this. So so sort of like Ubla is constantly trying to pay for her thing. Uh, William's take on this and what contrition means for him is... He'll get his hands dirty for the rest of us. Well, let's, let me rephrase that. He says, I'll get my hands dirty for the rest of you because that's what I meant for now. He says, 
that he can't be forgiven. His life is effectively over. He has no positive afterlife to look for. He is gone. But he's going to do good while he's alive. He's going to do something while he's alive. And good is very questionable here. But that's his goal. And I think there's a, you know, we talked about parallels towards uh, Aquia as well. But I think of another one here, especially given the most recent chapter, is the Forlorn Hope. Uh, the people that are told, you are dead. You have sinned in such a way that your death has happened for all intents and purposes. Now I get to use your life, I being cat, in what way I see fit, what what time you have where you ha- have actions available to you. You will use those in service of me, of the greater purpose that I serve. There's a similarity there. It's people who are past forgiveness, who cannot earn salvation, who are going to die, who have died, doing what they are told by a higher power. Uh, I don't know. There's, I think given how recently the Forlorn Hope showed up on screen, this is a, a another parallel that could be drawn. I don't know that there's much to be said about that or much meaning to be drawn from it. But, you know, nice little, nice little parallel in these chapters. That's meaninglessly interesting in comparison with my last suggested point, simply because that parallel parallels Cat with an angel, which I attempted to do. So... <laughs> Cat's half-orc, half-angel. So we have a, a triangle with three parallel lines now. Perfect. Do you know triangles have multiple centers? Yes. Hmm. And they're all parallel, I think we just learned. And the only ones I feel more sorry for than the contrition fools would be our listeners, the poor fools. I agree. For it is them, for it is they that have to wait an entire week before we can continue this, because that is all the time we have for today. Join us next time on Podcast Guys Talking Erratograta as we discuss one single conversation weighed in their blood. Podcast Guides Discuss the Dialectic of Practical Evil is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Erratus, a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was KL Peach Game Over 2 by Lightyear Tracks. Deicide music was Save As by Toby Lane. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at the long price. Do you have questions, comments, contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access at least one patron-exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, 
as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, a villainous interlude.